thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for the truth that it says therein that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. May we always be marked as a people that stands upon that, that great Reformation principle of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is what guides us. Scripture alone is what dictates us, how we live and how we move and how we have our being, how we exist, how we function, how we interact. May we always be known as Bible people, not out of pride, not out of a desire for one-upsmanship, but out of humility because we acknowledge that we are but dust. We, we acknowledge that we too often function like Job and speak uh, presumptuously and arrogantly against you instead of recognizing who we are and who you are. And following Scripture and using that as our only authoritative and sufficient guide allows us to walk in that humility and that, that peace, that grace, and that, that uh, warmth of relationship with you. So we pray that you would mark us by that and continue to help us with that as we study this evening the first great commandment that you have given all of us as your people and all of the world who even are not your people. May we see what's true is there and may what's true of the psalmist and his request be true of us, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to be all over again this evening, but we're looking at the first... Uh, commandment. We're looking at Westminster Shorter questions 45 through 48, and they're all about the first commandment. Now remember that this thing was set up as an instructional tool, so it's got to ask the very obvious question first, number 45, which is the first commandment? And that seems obvious to us, but what you're instructing somebody uh, in anything, they need to know what it is that we're doing. What am I looking at? Which one is it? And did you know this? that there are different, different uh, traditions that acknowledge different number. Uh, they're all ten, but different ones are different commandments. They get hairy down at the end of the tenth one. There's a Lutheran version of it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, I, I know that because of my Lutheran family. Uh, but So we, we got to acknowledge first. Like, which one's the first one? Where does it start? Well, here it is. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. We've got to identify the first one correctly, and that there's value in knowing these commandments by their number. Which one is first? That they're not just ten, take them in any order. They have a progression, and you have to start at the beginning, which God, of course, does, and then the, the Westminster divines who wrote the catechism have no reason to deviate from it. Well, when you think about it, we, we've said this before, but God condensed the revelation of his complete and perfect moral character down to ten things. The Hebrews would call ten words. Ten. The infinite God. Here's my moral character represented in ten. We, we make so little of it. We seem to have gotten over it. I, I remember thinking, I heard Vodi Bacchus. I used to not like him at all. But when he was, I love him now. But when he was speaking one time about some guy who came to date his daughter, and he, was, and he, he pounds the pulpit, he goes, he didn't even know the Ten Commandments when I sat him down. And I was like, well, who cares? I mean, does he know John 3, 6, and now I'm like, well, I don't want somebody dating my daughter who doesn't know the Ten Commandments. I mean, I'm a little, I'm a votey side now. Yet these matter. It would behoove us to know them and know them in the order that they give them, that God gives them. So here's the question that you got to dig into. And this is the way the catechism is structured. It looks at these Ten Commandments, what is required and what is forbidden. Now, we don't often think about that. We think so one-dimensional when we look at the Ten Commandments, but 
what, there's something required, but there's also a conversely something forbidden. That we, when we keep them down, it's like, don't lie, don't steal, don't lust, don't do these things. What's, if, if we have something that we're supposed to do, what are, we, what are we not supposed to do? If we have something we're not supposed to do, well, what are we supposed to do? Those are all encased in these ten words, as they're called, the Ten Commandments. And so we, we got to look at first is what is required, because this is not a negative commandment. It's a positive one, because it says, you shall have no other gods before me. So here's the answer for question 46. The first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. You saw that coming. Nobody's surprised by that answer. But why, why is this critical to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God? Here's why. You can say whatever you want to say about religion, about faith, about whatever, and everybody's okay with it until you say, yours is wrong. See, that's the kicker. That's what's required of us in the first commandment. The first commandment requires us to look out at the pantheon of religions and say they are all wrong, that there are only two religions in the whole world true Christianity and everything else that does not acknowledge God before all things. That, that's, what, that's why we have to, to wrestle with this, the validating the worship of the, only, the one and only God. That's premier. All true knowledge, all true wisdom, all true understanding and worldview, life skills, right living, it all starts from here. And David gets it. See, this is what's about David when you think, man, you like adultery and then murder, and you're like, man, after God's own heart. But what did he always have? First Chronicles 28, 9, David's passing the torch to Solomon, and he has this great conversation with Solomon. His, David's an old man on his deathbed, and this is a snippet from it when he says, and you, Solomon, my son, know you, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Why? For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek, found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. David's passing this torch and he's, he's pushing this preeminent thing. He's not saying, hey, make sure you have a basic understanding of economics so you don't sink the country. Make sure that you really have an idea of leadership because now the army is going to be looking to you. Pretty big army with a pretty big country and a pretty big global impact now. We fought off all the enemies. We got nobody left. So you got to make sure you have. No, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, know God. You must know God, who he is. And David, he's, he's saying everything crumbles if you don't have this. And that's what Solomon's undoing, is it not? He forgot God, and then he marries all these women. But that's not the problem. The problem is that his heart gets turned away. It was inevitably going to happen from that. God said that's what happened from it. But the problem was not the adultery, though that is truly sinful. It's that his heart gets led away. The wisest man in the world forgot God. David's not the wisest man in the world, but he's forever called a man after God's own heart. Because when he's immediately confronted with his sin, he immediately repents because he's, he, he lives in the first commandment. There is no other God but God. And I have been shown that I have violated it. I have sinned against God. And he prays in Psalm 51. What does he say? 
against you and you only have I sinned. That, that's his heart towards God. Deuteronomy 26, 17, Israel is in a similar position. They're not passing the torch, but they're coming into the promised land, so they're re-covenanting in a sense. Moses says to them, you have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. That's what you've said to do. You're recommitting before you go into Canaan, before you go into the promised land. This is the only way that they would be established. The only theocracy that the world has ever known, true theocracy that the world has ever known, this is the cornerstone. This is what the whole thing is built on, knowing who God is, the first commandment. Because everything else falls from that. If you keep that, then you will f stumble in these things, like David, but it won't. the whole thing won't collapse. What makes the whole thing collapse is you lose the first commandment. So they're gone. But then you have Jesus wrestling with the same kind of thing in his temptation. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. So this is, this is Satan's final attempt. And he says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Have you ever read these temptations and been like, Satan, did you even try? I mean, this is the weakest game I've ever seen. Like, you're going to say, hey, Jesus, I'll give you everything. He has everything. He's the creator. Didn't you read John 1, Satan? I mean, come on, man. Like, what's, you, you, you know this stuff. But, but what is he getting Jesus to do? What's the point of it? It's not like, I'll get five seconds of glory as Satan being worshipped by Jesus. This is the ultimate. This is, the, this is God acknowledging somebody else as God. This brings down all things. I mean, if God can fall, I mean, this is monumental. And, and if it wasn't a temptation, he wouldn't try it. So obviously the temptation is focused on his human nature. But if Jesus does this, it's a lie. He commits cosmic treason. He's, in a sense, in his indivisible nature of truly man and truly God, it becomes divided. It is divisible. I mean, that's like splitting the atom, but on a God-infinite level. Just to avoid the pain of the cross, to avoid the wrath of God. That's why it was tempting. So just like all, and Jesus' answer is, be gone, never. This is the, and he goes back to a reiteration of the first commandment. That's not a quote from the first commandment. That's a quote from Deuteronomy elsewhere. But it's, it's like we've, we've talked about that the rest of the Old Testament law is really just a, an explanation, an expansion of all ten commandments. So just as all wisdom and knowledge and blessing comes from following the first commandment, all sin, death, evil, destruction, and cursing comes from rejecting it. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 29, 2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in splendor, of holiness the, the first commandment and what psalm 29 2 is ascribe to the lord glory due his name there's no glory due to our name so we deserve no ascribing of it so we do that and we worship the lord in the splendor of holiness he is holy and we are not the first commandment is is rigged to humble us you are you're everything that i'm not I, i'm the picture of you the flawed blurry ripped picture of you you are not that of me. You are God and I am not. It necessarily diminishes us and exalts God. That's why if that one falls, then the rest of them are a given. 
If you are exalted and God is diminished, of course you'll commit adultery, of course you'll murder, of course you'll lie, of course you'll break the Sabbath, I mean, of course you'll do all those things. So that's what's required. Here's what's forbidden. Here's the other side of it. This is what it doesn't say, but it's a, it is the logical conclusion of it when you look at it. So the first commandment forbids the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God. So it forbids the denying and the not worshiping and the giving of that worship and glory to another, which is due to him alone, meaning due to God alone. So first, it's the denying of God, the glory due to him. So Psalm 14, 1. The psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. So this is talking about the atheist, the supposed atheist. There's no well-intended or sincere atheists. It says that they are fools, they're corrupt, they're abominable, and they can't do anything good. So this is, this is the forbidden side of it. This is what's real. That's what it forbids is the denying of it and not worshiping God, the one true God. That's the next one. So, so this also goes from the atheist then to the false religion. So the Buddhist, the Hindu, the, the Muslim, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they're, they're not sincere. That they're, they're just innocently doing this. They don't know. Romans one twenty one says, for although... They knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They're not just missing the mark that they, they, they know. They knew God, but they chose to not honor him. They chose to honor Allah or Krishna or a false perception of Jehovah or a false understanding of Jesus. They chose to do that. That's the opposite of the, of the first commandment. So they're not innocent. They're guilty. They've broken. They've shattered the first commandment. Every unbeliever is a willing first commandment breaker. In Psalm 81, 10 and 11, says as much. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel would not submit to me. This is the doubly guilty, not worshiping God, but you know the real God. They, they, they know the real God. That's why Jesus says to the Pharisees, hell is going to be worse for you than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be worse for you. There's gradations of hell. It's worse. Why? Because you knew the truth, you had the Bible insofar as they had progressive revelation. They had all that had been revealed. And you blew it, and you rejected it. You said, I don't want that God. Like Paul says in, in Romans 10, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for the name, but not the real God, a God of their own making. And then lastly, is giving worship to another. This is what's forbidden, is giving worship to another. Romans 1, 25 and 26, describing the unbeliever, says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Is that Paul? Paul can't even get out of that verse. He can't say, this is what they did. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And he's, he, he, it's like he's, 
He's so repulsed by that. He has to say, by the way, this is the God who's blessed forever. Amen. Truly, that's who he is. He, he like can't even, his pen won't even let him write that without bringing real glory to God. So it, it says this, for this reason God gave them up to desirable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And it goes on and on and on down to, to the end of Romans 1 and chapter in verse 32. So you can't singly worship another. That's what's forbidden. Anything serves the creature, any created thing, rather than the creator in any way. And everything that's not God is a creature. God's the only thing that's not a creature. He's the only creator. Everything else is a creature. So you can't, you can't wholeheartedly, you're forbidden to wholeheartedly worship another, but you're also forbidden to divide your worship. Because doesn't Jesus say that you can't serve two masters? Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That that is an impossibility for us. So we know what's required and then what's forbidden and what are we especially taught? This is the last question. What are we especially taught by these words, the before me words, have no other gods before me in the first commandment? These words before me in the first commandment teach us that God who sees all things takes notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. So a lot of times what we think of when we think of have no other gods before me, we think of as in front of or in place of me have no other gods in the ranking in front of me but it also means and if we could put just kind of have to dumb it down is don't do it where i can see it don't have it before me don't bring it before me that that false god so then you're like well what's what's not before god deuteronomy 30 17 through 18 god says but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess it. A clear hatred for all idolatry. And then Psalm 44 and then Ezekiel 8, we're going to see what is idolatry. Psalm 44, 20 through 21, if we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign god, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. He knows the secrets of our heart. So every, what's before God, what, what's presented before him, visible before him, everything. The secrets of our heart are. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is an idle factory. It just keeps pumping them out. And when you, when you, Lose one, the things that you would love and you were obsessed with when you were young, they're not the same things now. It just keeps pumping them out. You just keep making new ones. And whenever you get that thing, I remember talking about this with uh, a young man that I was meeting with in, when we were living in College Station, and he walked on to the Aggie football team. So he was training and doing all these things, and he was undersized, but he's pretty skilled. And so he's training and training, just, and so the first thing is I just want them to give me a look. So they gave him a look at the tryout. And he's like, okay, I just want them to just, I just want to be on the practice squad. And I was like, great, Matt, that's awesome. And so he gets there, and he's on the practice squad. And he's like, I just, I just want to make it to where I can dress out for games. And, and, then, and then he just kind of noticed, as he's going through this progression, he was like, every time I reached a certain level, I just wanted the next level. 
I always said that this is what I wanted, but then I was like, oh, I got that, and well, now I want a new thing, and a new thing, and a new thing, and a new thing. And then he ended up just quitting the team because of, for spiritual reasons. That, and it was the season that Johnny Manziel had his breakout season, and he was never going to see the field, ever. <laughs> ever. <laughs> but, uh, but it was still, it was one of those moments where I was like, man, that's really plain and obvious because there was a ranking of, of, of layers to get to. His, his art just kept making more idols, that when he got one, it made another one. And, I mean, it was, and it was right there, ready to go, freshly minted, ready. But God sees those things, and we know that. And Ezekiel 8, 12 says something along the same lines as God speaking to Ezekiel, the prophet. He says, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He sees these, he says, hey, Ezekiel, do you know what they're doing in the dark that they think that nobody can see? But I do see. Do you know about that? You know, we, we've scorned the idea, or it's been scorned in our presence, of uh, made a, or made a caricature of the all-seeing sky god who's just looking down and judging. He can see everything. And, and then, you know, even liberals go even further, like Santa Claus is just reinforcing that because he's looking. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you do bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. He can see that. We got to get rid of all of that. All of, I mean, that's just that's manipulation and that's overbearing and that's guilting and fundamentalism and all these things. And and there's some extent where that can go pretty extreme. But let's just look at our own hearts. Do you slow down on the highway when you see the police officer? So when you know he can see you, you follow the law. But when you know he can't see you, you don't follow the law. So for us to get rid of this concept of God seeing and us bringing other gods before him, we shouldn't lose that. Now, we don't need to use it as a manipulation tactic to, to uh, browbeat people into some kind of false obedience because the same thing is true of your heart. Like you can, you can change external behavior and not be totally reborn, not be justified. But we don't need to lose this concept that God is aware of all these things that we're doing and that he, the gods that we hide in our hearts because we're smart enough to not have an idol out in the, the backyard of totem pole. We're smart enough to know, like, hey, don't talk about your bank account, but just check it all the time and look how much money's in it. We're smart enough to know, like, to know, like, I, I only really delve into my sports obsession with these people who aren't really in my church crew. So we can hide these idols of our hearts, but, but God's saying, don't bring that before me, and everywhere is before me. And don't rank them before me, because everything is beneath me as the creator. So here, wrapping us up. Sproul said this uh, just a little bit before he died. He said, the greatest problem in the church today, or the greatest need in the church today, is to understand who God is. He said, we don't know who God is. And that's part of what the first commandment's all about. And Paul Washer says something similar. He said, theology proper, so the study of, of God, capital T, theology proper, that's the greatest need in the church. We don't know who he is. We, we need to know who he is. We must know God in order to worship, serve, and love him. That's what these Ten Commandments do, particularly the first one. Have no other gods before me. This is what I require of you. This is what's forbidden. And this is what ultimately brings blessing in the land, to know me. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. 
says this. Sorry, I just added this in, Barbara. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. He said, uh, Jeremiah is, or God's saying through Jeremiah, he's saying, don't, don't let the rich man boast in his riches or the wise man boast in his wisdom, the mighty man boast in his mind, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the one. Jeremiah, oh, 23 through 24, not 13. It's a big old chunk. 23 through 24. Let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Don't boast in any of that junk. Anybody can get wisdom. Anybody can get knowledge. Anybody can get wealth. Anybody can be strong and powerful. That's not boastworthy. Boast in this, that you know me. And that's the essence of the first commandment.